with everything happening in the world in terms of um, the, the climate, this is maybe the next, and it's weird to say because we've been studying ecosystems as long as we've been studying anything, but I think this be, this uh, continues to be the frontier in uh, natural sciences is um, ecosystem dy- dynamics and ecosystem biology in, in so many ways. And, you know, so in, in summary, life uh, finds a way. Hi, my name is Irfan Vafai with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. And I'm Vikram Baliga with Texas Tech University. And this is Jolly Green Scientists, a podcast where we digest research articles and findings from trade magazines pertaining to the green industry and regurgitate them for you. And this week we'll be talking about a paper called Virus Infection of Plants Alters Pollinator Preference, a Payback for Susceptible Hosts by Simon C. Grohn et al. So in this paper, they're looking uh, both at tomatoes and Arabidopsis are the two host plants. What is Arabidopsis? So uh, another name for Arabidopsis is the mouse ear cress or thalocress. Oh, yes. And it's just a little flowering plant grows in roadsides in uh, Eurasia and Africa, generally considered a weed. It's just everywhere. It's a cool season, grows fast. So like I hear Arabidopsis a lot when it comes to plant research. Like it just sounds like one of those things you hear a lot. Why? Yeah, all the time. Like why, why Arabidopsis? Why is that in here? It just grows super fast. So when you're doing especially um, work like this where you're looking at uh, response traits or especially genetics, it's used a ton in genetics, uh, It just it, you can get through multiple generations very, very quickly. It's just you know a number of days from seed to flower. And so uh, compared to some plants, even like tomatoes that have a long life cycle or a relatively long life cycle, um, you can just crank these things out. So if you're looking at new traits, new gene development, uh, response to um, environmental factors, kind of like they looked at, and predation factors like you, they've looked at in this paper, uh, you can just get through it very quickly. So it sounds like it's akin to what we use in the entomology world, like Drosophila fruit flies, because they have very quick generation times. Uh, you can very quickly see differences in phenotype, like if you manipulate their genetics and whatnot. So that, and they're very easy to rear in a lab. So they're just very easy to work with. So I guess they're used as a model organism. Yeah, absolutely. They grow quick. They're kind of annoying. Uh, you know, nobody really wants them around, but they're great for research. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in this, they're looking at a virus, specifically cucumber mosaic virus, and they are infecting both the Arabidopsis and tomato plants. What, like, are you familiar with this virus? Have you uh, encountered it out in the wild? So we see it quite a bit in um crop production and horticultural crop production. Uh, everything from like the name suggests cucumbers to tomatoes are pretty susceptible to cucumber mosaic virus. And like most viruses, uh, transmission is pretty easy through uh, physical contact, through you know vector transmission and all these things. And it, uh, re- it tends to reduce flower load, um, uh, fruit set, and all of those things. So it's generally uh, just pretty harmful to um, overall yield in a crop. And this, in, this, in this particular case, is vectored by aphids. So anyone familiar with aphids or a sucking insect pest, very prolific, you know, reproduce very rapidly. We spoke about them in an earlier episode. And uh, they can vector this virus. So if you see any symptoms of this virus and you have aphids, like absolute control of those aphids is vital to stopping it from moving around. So as you mentioned, this uh, virus, so it's abbreviated CMV or cucumber mosaic virus, um, it exhibits a number of symptoms that would, in theory, decrease 
um, the, let's say, uh, what, the, the offspring, the number of offspring that these plants would produce, right? Like it decreases flowering and yield? Uh, flowering and yield, and, and specifically in some cases, um, seed set. Right. So you may get fruits with a low seed count or a low seed weight. And a lot of times these low seed weights uh, represent poor germination in subsequent generations. So, you know, in the wild, that's definitely deleterious to a, a population. If your seeds aren't viable or if you're not getting as many of them, you don't get as many subsequent generations. And so uh, it's interesting as we talk about these viruses. Now, this is an RNA virus, which again has been similar to something that's been in the news lately uh, <laughs> in some ways. So viruses need a host, right? They're not, right. there's there's a lot of debate on whether a virus is actually alive or not. Is, yeah, kind of like a zombie. Needs, yeah, exactly. Is the right. zombie alive? What is actually the zombie? Is it yeah. the brain or the, uh, we're, we're, you know, the virus derailing is the, Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I yeah, think so. this is on point actually, but continue. Well, I guess <laughs> it might be. <laughs> it, it needs a host. It is obligated to have a host to replicate uh, in those host cells and to spread. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting concept that a virus that reduces seed set ultimately may not have enough future generations to carry on its um, DNA, right? Yeah. So it's it's replication. So there's a couple of ways that viruses seem to get around this. And one of those is to have a wide host range where it can affect, infect a lot of things, which mm -hmm. we kind of see to a certain extent here. Um, but another way that viruses, I guess, get around some of these issues is they don't necessarily kill the host. Yeah. And that can be through um, just the fact that they're not too harmful to the host. They only cause small changes. Or what's interesting in this case is there's this idea that plants, tomato plants specifically, infected with the CMV virus uh, actually produce this volatile compound that attracts more pollinators. So even though the virus in and of itself reduces um, seed weight or seed load per fruit, increased pollination may make up for some of that lack. Yes. I think, you know, how they get into this discussion is that, you know, if you have a virus that is going to uh, potentially kill the plant and, and prevent it from uh, producing the offspring, you can get some relatively quick selection for resistant plants, right? And right. so the question is, you know, and then all of a sudden the virus can no longer persist. So it's right. in the interest of the virus for susceptible plants to still produce uh, at a relatively high rate so you can continue to persist. You know, this makes me think about the whole, you know, there's a whole virus uh, trade-off hypothesis, right? That talks about in order for a virus to be very prolific and do well, it needs to use a lot of the host's resources, but it also means that it can potentially kill the host a lot easier. Whereas if it's not using as much resources, like, hey, it keeps the host alive, but the virus won't be as virulent, won't be able to transmit perhaps as easily. Right. And so you've got this, this trade-off where this virus is, is trying to find uh, you know, not intellectually, but it is in a sense uh, evolving to find the best strategy to persist on these tomatoes. Here, they want to investigate how is it that this virus uh, essentially persists and or keeps these susceptible tomatoes uh, going in a natural environment, even though it is potentially decreasing the amount of you know, fruit set and or seeds. Right. So enter bumblebees. No, no, why? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, bumblebees are really an interesting insect. They're uh, 
pretty prolific pollinators. But if you watch, they're called bumblebees for a reason, right? They kind of bumble around and they don't. The thought is maybe they're they not bumble around. That is a different meaning nowadays. Oh for, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like uh, what? It's like the newer Tinder. I think it's not. Was not what the. I don't know. I don't know what the kids are doing. What are the kids doing? (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I've been, I've been married for almost 10 years and my wife and I've been together since we were 15 years old. So I have no idea. Yeah. 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 It's like, I I know from the single cousins, the bumble is like, I think that the healthier version of Tinder, I think. Uh, the health. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like how you put that. The healthier yeah. version of Tinder. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. By the way, um, I feel like we're coming up with a lot of good band names in that show, in this show. <laughs> and the single cousins is a great one. Um, anyway, so uh, so they they looked at bumblebees mm-hmm. for this study um, and, and whether these volatiles actually attract more bumblebees. And based on that that the pollination increases and the fruit set and the seed set increases. Uh, so bumblebees do this really interesting thing. And there's this interesting relationship with the tomato where they do something called buzz pollination, mm-hmm. which is honestly pretty much just what it sounds like, right? <laughs> Instead of the, the traditional or in addition to the traditional thought where they come in, they pick up the pollen and then they go to another flower, deposit the pollen, all of that. Uh, that does happen, but, but tomatoes are self fertile, right? So they can, fertilize other flowers on the plant or within the same flower even. Uh, But they have this interesting evolutionary adaptation where the flowers have to be vibrated in order for that pollen to uh, be deposited properly and for the whole process to go through. Part of the relationship is because tomato flowers are so small and delicate, it's not a big landing pad for this insect. Hmm. So the insect hits the flower and they have to vibrate and buzz their wings to stay on the flower. They can't just hang there as well as they can on something with a larger landing pad. And so by this whole process of the bee vibrating its wings, just trying not to fall off because uh, they're, they're big and goofy. They're like sky pandas. Um, <laughs> it helps to pollinate this plant and uh, can actually have pretty large increases in fruit set, just in even in natural non-infected conditions. It's really interesting. Yeah. And it's, it's really neat because bumblebees, uh, depending on the types of flowers they pollinate can have, uh, they'll do different frequencies of like vibrating. And so it's like a whole other study where they looked at kind of like the frequency of their, their buzzing. And it was specific to, uh, you know, dislodging pollen out of different types of flowers. So now in this one, they're trying to determine, right? Because there's been a lot of work done on, all right, if something is infected by a virus, how does that impact the uh, visual cues, right? Mm-hmm. Of, of a particular plant to pollinators. But no one had really looked at how does that affect the olfactory or volatile cues, these chemicals that, that the plant is releasing into the air to attract pollinators. And so one part of the study was it did this neat little, Uh, arena, created this neat arena where they have some plants that are infected with the CMV virus and some that are not, but they're kind of hidden. The bee can't touch it, nor can it see it, but it's positioned in such a way, there's like a, you know, a mesh tunnel basically put over them so that the bees can still smell them. Mm -hmm. And what they found was, what did they find, Vikram? What did they find? Uh, They found that Kind of across the board, and they have a really interesting um, graph here uh, in, I guess, page four of the article that that shows that the visits to the CMV-infected plants were pretty significantly higher, statistically significantly, but with strong p-values, um, 
for visits by these bumblebees. So yeah. uh, there was a strong olfactory effect here with some of these volatile compounds that the, the bees were strongly attracted to. Yeah, and they look at basically the volatiles that are coming off the tomato plants, right? So they, they use this technique called headspace volatile collection. So basically put like a glass jar almost like over the plant and they're collecting all of the chemicals that come off it. And then they're analyzing that using analytical chemistry techniques. And they actually find that there's a, uh, you know, a change in the volatile composition. If it's infected by a CMV, they find some volatiles are actually decreased, which have been associated with repelling bumblebees. Mm -hmm. So if a certain flower and, and this is kind of interesting, something I learned from here, is that if it starts getting too many visits by bumblebees in order to prevent damage uh, from occurring to the flower, it can emit this volatile to basically repel these bumblebees. Well, in this case, it uh, this virus will decrease that volatile. So it almost increases the attractiveness of uh, that flower to bumblebees. And what was what was very interesting is that uh, they used a uh, kind of reward punishment system for uh, the way that the bumblebees went to the flowers, right? So they would put a little, uh, essentially a little thimble full of either sucrose or quinine on top of these towers that the plants were in. Yeah. So the bumblebees can't distinguish the difference except by the taste of the um, substance of the liquid. So they would visit some of these and uh, based on the volatile compounds, right? They're, they're visiting these plants more and they would get either a reward in the term, in the, in the form of sucrose or a punishment quote unquote punishment in the form of quinine. And what they found is that there was a, a really, one of the most interesting things I, I found in this article um, was the learning curve of these bees. There's some really interesting graphs in here that yeah. the based on the volatiles, they could tell the difference. Uh, and they visited over time, these plants that had the sucrose, even without being able to tell the difference in the in the liquid itself, just based on the plant, I, I guess, chemical signature that they could smell. Um, and over time, with more choice experiments and, and repeated trials, individual bees learned not to go to those plants with quinine. I think that, that's super fascinating. Yeah, they gave these bumblebees like 100 opportunities to, to learn, essentially, which is kind of fun. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> like, All right, try like, again, buddy. Try again, but yeah, yeah, let's see what you pick this time. Um, Kung yeah, Fu, I had to, uh, Kung Fu Sky Panda four. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I had to do a double take on those graphs and the, and the methods to be like, Whoa, like what am I looking at? the same bumblebee a hundred times, uh, to get them to essentially learn over time. And so what they also found, so again, going back to the effect of CMV on the tomato plant. So they found a great, um, decrease in the amount of seed production when it was infected by CMV. Mm -hmm. However, when you combine that with uh, the pollinators being able to you know, choose, you kind of get um, less of a deleterious effect. I think it's kind of a little bit closer to, uh, what is it, like 50% yield mm -hmm. in uh, CMV plants that have opportunity to be buzz pollinated versus the non-CMV plants that also have the opportunity to be CMV uh, pollinated, right? So like, yes, helps increase that by quite a bit, quite a bit. And, and as we've kind of discussed, that leads to the opportunity for these non-resistant or non-virus resistant plants to, uh, further their genotype, right. To yeah. uh, carry on their progeny, which again, from the standpoint of the virus, they want more 
non-resistant plants out there. <laughs> the more, the better, right? Because that's the more hosts right. they can pick up. You know, they did do some uh, neat mathematical modeling, right? So they extrapolate some of this stuff now. And they say, all right, if we model this now, uh, based on these qualities of being a little bit more attractive if you're infected by CMV, would this allow for susceptible plants to persist, right? And they say that some of the uh, important parameters to consider are depends on the balance of pollinator bias to infected plants, right? So we already know they're a little bit more attracted to infected plants, but how strong is that bias? Mm -hmm. uh, the reduction in seed set by infected plants. So we already know there's a reduction in seed in a natural environment that that may be very a little bit different. So you kind of have to play with those assumptions. And the average number of pollinator visits per flower, right? So just what is the abundance of bumblebee, bumblebees in that environment? Because again, it's going to be very, uh, if you have just having the preference for the bumblebees isn't enough. There's got to be bumblebees there and pollinating for it to actually give the advantage to the CMV infected plants. And what they found in, in you know, when they're manipulating a lot of the parameters for the most part was that you get coexistence between right. your susceptible and resistant hosts um, within a certain range of, of those parameters, which you know, it can be very realistic. Sure. So it's kind of very neat, again, where you have this, this virus that can severely impact the fertility, the ability to produce seeds of its host, but through manipulation of its environment, manipulation of volatile organic compounds to attract pollinators, it can, you know, it's just like payback, you know, it can resupply uh, its host with um, some some higher fertility in order to maintain those susceptible hosts in the environment. Well, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on some of the practical aspects of this, because it, it's very interesting, right? But what, mm -hmm. what we're trying to do is really drill this into, okay, practically in the industry, what does this mean? So breeders spend a lot of time trying to come up with uh, resistant genetics to a number of viruses and uh, insects and all kinds of things, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So with CMV being such a problem in the industry, right, it really reduces your seed set, which is really a thing you don't want, both on the seed production side and, and on the, the, I guess, market side of this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, there's two ways to look at this, I think. In a natural ecosystem, this probably ultimately, I'm not going to say it doesn't matter, but from a uh, use standpoint, it's not that big of a deal. Because then, like you said, there is some potential coexistence of these two um, genetic pools out there in nature. And, and it's fine, right? It'll strike some kind of a natural balance. Yeah. But, but when we're growing things for a purpose, we don't really necessarily want a natural balance, right? We want all right. of our plants to produce as many fruits and or and or as many seeds as possible. Mm -hmm. So uh, from from your standpoint, what do you think is are some of the the industry implications of this, right? Does it make our work in breeding more difficult? Does it make maintaining uh, some of these true genetic lines more difficult? Because we are controlling fairly closely for um, what ends up in the market and all this, but you think of a tomato production facility. Where, do, where does this go? How does this impact the industry? Yeah, so I think there's two main things that come to mind here. One is, uh, and, and you might be able to speak to this a bit better, is that when we're selecting certain cultivars, if we're selecting, say, for resistance and for visual qualities and or you know, yield or fruit set, um, it might not always be in the context of how well does it also attract certain pollinators 
or how does that impact the olfactory cues of that plant, right? So here we have an example of uh, two plants that, you know, physically look different, but also more importantly, they have a different smell to the pollinators. So one is a lot more attractive. And as a result, it makes up for not completely, but a good portion of its lack of fruit set or seed set. Mm -hmm. And so I think that might be one kind of interesting thing to look at is, you know, are, is attractiveness, not just by physical cues, but also by, by smelling cues, by chemical cues, uh, assessed when, when we're looking at some of these things. And then the second one is that, you know, I think uh, our cultivated environments are much different, say, than our natural environments, where our natural environments might have a lot more genetic variation, a mm -hmm. lot more, uh, we have susceptible and resistant, whereas, you know, your greenhouse might be all one ISO line, one clone, which might be resistant. But if all of a sudden you get a variant that can overcome that resistance, you no longer have a balance to play between, you know, resistant and susceptible. You just have your susceptible. And that's where they can potentially get hit pretty hard. Um, and a lot of these principles of natural selection or virus uh, trade-off hypothesis don't really play in anymore because we are artificially propagating them, right? So if a virus kills a tomato plant, uh, if you still have its cloned seed somewhere and plant it, then in a sense, that virus did very well to, you know, use up all the resources it could, uh, maybe get into another uh, potential vector, like another aphid. And if we're planting the same seeds, the same susceptible seeds, then we're helping that virus basically persist. You know, it's right. the, the fact that it's used up all the resources in that tomato plant is not necessarily impacting that tomato plant's ability to reseed and reproduce and, and um, you know, continue to be within the, the population of, of susceptible hosts, I guess. Something interesting here too, I think, is I can hear the question because I get this question all the time is, well, you're just making all these in a lab anyway, right? You're just inserting genes and doing all this thing and, and all, all these things. And what does it matter if, you know, the virus is susceptible? You just go back in the lab and you make more, right? But the fact of the matter is when people say things like that, and I think this is important to understand, largely you're talking about like GMOs and, you know, targeted gene insertions. Mm -hmm. And in some crops, I would totally say, yeah, that's true. Like, so what? There's a virus, we'll just go insert a new gene or whatever. But that's not a thing in tomatoes, right? We have yeah. uh, we have very limited crop ranges on what actually we can release in a GMO. Or mm -hmm. I said that poorly. Um, we only have selected crops that are on the market as GMOs, GMO, right? Yeah. So while yes, we could go in a lab and like take out the gene that the that is susceptible to the CMV virus or whatever, or, or alter that binding site or something like that. That's certainly possible. There's a lot we can do, we can't go out and sell this tomato. So we're, yeah. we're kind of not, I want to say stuck with, but we're limited to uh, traditional crosses and traditional selections. So I, I guess my thought here is if you get a virus that, again, viruses mutate fairly quickly that come in and they overcome some of this resistance and end up largely in a crop, uh, it takes time to go and rehybridize and, oh, yeah. and select that out of a population. So from a practical standpoint, uh, say you're a homeowner that buys a tomato or, or whatever, or you're a tomato farmer that has uh, tomatoes and you end up with 
a strain of this CMV that overcomes some of the resistance. I think it's an interesting thought that, okay, but this virus isn't necessarily just going to wipe out your whole crop because there are bumblebees, right? And it may right. be attracting these bumblebees. So from a production standpoint on the production end, it's interesting that even though it's it's there is a potential for this resistance to be overcome, it still may not ultimately affect the bottom line as much as uh, it may in some other crops. And this is a very specific case, right? Like there's right. so many viruses out there and all of that. But no. I just think that's an interesting thought that it's not just oh, we'll just go make a new one. No, these things take time a and a of lot time. of resources. Yeah. And that's why I think uh, genetic engineering had been developed because traditional crossing and breeding can take so long. Whereas genetic engineering is a bit of a shortcut. But like you said, I mean, you know, it makes me think of uh, citrus greening, which is a you know, mm -hmm. major plant virus um, that's that's basically, you know, reduces, if not completely kills a citrus tree within three years. And there are some states that are close to 100% infected. Um, and they did find a potential solution that involved genetically engineering the rootstock with a gene from another plant that would make all citrus resistant. But then that means that all of the citrus coming from that plant would be genetically engineered. And just because of that, that solution has been put on the back burner uh, until they potentially find another. And so it's a very interesting example of, yeah, we could easily solve an issue with science and technology, but, be but because of public perception uh, and, and yeah, I said because of public perception, we cannot adopt those certain technologies. And I think in some cases, that's very unfortunate. In other cases, I think it's, uh, you know, it's fair because mm -hmm. it might be an ethical question. For example, genetically engineering uh, mosquitoes so that when they mate, they, you know, do not produce offspring at all. So you could potentially eradicate a species by doing that. And which so we get to that. <laughs> yeah, which is a thing, right? And so we get to the ethical question, you know, should we eradicate a species because we find it a nuisance, whereas, you know, mosquitoes are one of the biggest killers on the planet in terms of animals. So in that case, is it okay to eradicate a species because they kill humans, you know? So you get to these very important ethical questions that, that, you know, I think, um, is fair to have some public discourse, but then there are some others that despite the public discourse and despite the scientific evidence demonstrating safety and or efficacy, um, is still shot down due to public perception. Right. And that's, you know, that's again, I, and I, I ch led us down this rabbit trail, which is a little bit of a tangent, but I do think it's relevant anytime we're talking about breeding in any way or, or selection yeah. in any way that uh, it is important that there are things that we can do theoretically, you know, scientifically, right. yeah. but there's maybe things that, like you say, are not acceptable in the market for whatever reason. Yeah. One thing I see, um, uh, th there's a line in here that says to mitigate the ensuing loss of pollination activity uh, requires, among other things, a deeper understanding of the mechanism shaping bee plant interactions. And I highlighted that specifically as I read it, because I think that this kind of study opens the door to so many other things, because we understand some about these very complex relationships, but there's so much more to learn. Yeah. Right. So, uh, this this is you know uh, you know fundamental science in so many ways because it leads us down. It, it, I think I think uh, an interesting point about science in general, especially this type of science, is that it gives us more questions. And mm -hmm. science is finding new questions per, to pursue. That's so much of what we do. Is okay, we've answered one little part of this puzzle, but gosh, there's so much more to investigate. Like I think what this paper did was demonstrate 
how uh, a certain plant virus can influence organic compounds, the volatile organic compounds coming off plants and how that can influence pollinators. And this is something that all of a sudden opens up a whole new door to investigate, well, what other plant viruses or plant pathogens in general might release certain types of chemicals into the air that would manipulate the behaviors of the ecosystem, whether it be predators or it might be herbivores or it might be other pollinators or so on and so forth. So it just opens up this whole door, similar to kind of that last study that we uh, discussed, which is looking at uh, fungi in the soil and how that association of the fungi with the plant roots can impact, um, you know, the sequestration of plant defense compounds or potential recruitment of natural enemies and so on and so forth. So it like opens up this whole other avenue and it's like, whoa, well, in what other systems does this occur and how does this all fit into our ecosystems now? You know, it's like right. our understanding of ecosystem has come a long way from like hawk eats mouse and mouse <laughs> eats, you know, like grain, you know, it's like, <laughs> which with everything happening in the world in terms of um, the, the climate, this is maybe the next, and it's weird to say, because we've been studying ecosystems as long as we've been studying anything. But yeah. I think this, this uh, continues to be the frontier in uh, natural sciences is um, ecosystem dy dynamics and ecosystem biology in, mm -hmm. in so many ways. And, you know, so in, in uh, summary, life uh, finds a way. <laughs> Pro probably cut that I out. I don't want to get, Goldblum. I don't wanna get, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to get sued by Jeff Goldblum, <laughs> specifically not him. I specifically don't want to get sued by Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, it'd be kind of cool if like you got to see him in court. Like, yeah, would that I be guess. worth would that be worth the I don't know, maybe two hundred thousand dollars <laughs> <laughs> for the copyright infringement. I don't know. Yeah, I yeah, do yeah. like Jeff Goldblum. This has been another episode of Jolly Green Scientists. Thank you all so much for joining us. Again, my name is Airfon with Texas AM AgriLife Extension. And I'm Vikram with Texas Tech University. And we'll see y'all next time. Or, or or we'll talk to you next time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a scary thought we can see you while we're talking to you <laughs> i'm glad most of the pot yeah don't oh my gosh you that you you gave up the biggest podcast secret that we can watch you while you're listening to podcasts we're doing a study this is all science all for science <laughs>